This morning, I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Exodus chapter 20. I want to read one verse in your hearing, verse 13. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As today we continue our sermon series entitled First and Ten, a study of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, and we acknowledge that that is one short, sacred sentence. And yet, Lord, we need your help as we try to unpack it in a way that is biblically accurate, we can apply to our lives and hear your heartbeat. So, Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. It's really amazing how two words can be so confusing. In the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the Hebrew phrase is simply lo tirzak. In 1611, the King James Version rendered that, thou shalt not kill. In 1973, The New International Version translated it, you shall not murder. My question to you this morning is, which one is right? Is it kill or is it murder? You think to yourself, what difference does it make? You say potato, I say potato. You say pajamas, I say pajamas. I mean, it really doesn't matter. Kill, murder, they're both the same thing. And yet, they might be drastically different. To make matters worse, there are numerous organizations that evoke the Sixth Commandment in defense of their actions. For example, an animal rights activist group will claim the Sixth Commandment saying, you shall not kill anything. A group of people standing outside an abortion clinic will say from the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. Those who protest a war demonstration Gather with signs that claim the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. And those who gather outside a federal courthouse, wanting a verdict that is not capital punishment, will say from the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. I wonder, are any of those, all of those, none of those acceptable applications of the sixth commandment? When you and I look through the pages of the Bible, it would seem that there were times when God would ordain, that God would advocate killing and murder. You go so far as uh, Genesis chapter 3. It's there that God ordains the killing of animals to make garments of skin for Adam and Eve after the fall. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament is built on the assumption that sheep and lamb and cattle, oxen, will be killed in order to be sacrificed and their blood shed as a precursor to the Lamb of God who will take away all the sins of the world. You go to a place like 1 Samuel chapter 15 and the Lord says to the prophet Samuel, to the king named Saul, destroy the Amalekites. If there's any confusion on what that word destroy means, God clarifies, I want you to kill everything. Men, women, boys, girls, cattle, camels. 
everything. Now, you and I would read 1 Samuel chapter 15. It sounds a lot like a war zone. You come to a place in the New Testament like um, Romans chapter 13. And through the Apostle Paul, the Lord says to the church and to every nation, the government is an agent of wrath. It is a servant of God. And the government holds the sword for a reason. If you do good, you have nothing to fear. But if you do wrong, if you do evil, then you certainly have something to fear for the government wields the sword for a reason. That would seem to indicate that every nation should have a military and every nation is permitted for capital punishment. For they are charged by God to protect their citizens from the evil that's outside their boundaries and from the evil that is within their boundaries. Then you come to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, our passage, and it says, you shall not murder. I do think that the rendering of murder is more accurate than the rendering of killing killing anything. I think it specifically is speaking about the murder of humanity. But even at that, at best, it seems a little bit confusing. At worst, it seems conflicting. And you walk away and you think to yourself, is God divinely schizophrenic? And the answer is no. I mean, God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. So, so how do you decipher? How do you discern? How do you make sense out of all these examples? Well, I think we ought to take a closer look at that two-word Hebrew phrase. The first of the two words is lo. It simply means no. The second word, tirzak. It means senseless murder. Now, who gets to define what is senseless? Who gets to define what is sensible? It is the Lord. So it would seem to me that the sixth commandment is forbidding senseless murder. That's the taking of human life outside of the parameters set forth by God. There are times in Israel's history, and Israel was a theocracy led by the Lord, not a democracy. And yet even Israel was given commands of God to go to war. And Israel was given commands of the Lord for capital punishment. Therefore, as you fast forward to the New Testament, and even as you fast forward today, I think that God permits in cases of war and in cases of capital punishment where uh, murder of humanity is permissible. But remember, the Ten Commandments were given to help us live in community. It was to help us live in society. So when you come to the Sixth Commandment, the Lord is saying, do not take human life outside of the parameters that I've already set forth in war and capital punishment. Remember that the first four commandments were given to help us understand practically how we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Fifth Commandment we called the hinge of the two tablets, it's the hinge upon which everything in the Ten Commandments seem to swivel because the love of God is given to the family and then through the family. So in the Fifth Commandment, we learned that the Lord said, honor your father and mother. That says something to children. It also says something to parents. And ultimately, it says something that God honors the family that honors him. And then from that family we find the last five commandments which show us in a practical way how we love our neighbor as ourself. And first and foremost, the way you love your neighbor is don't kill them. 
I mean, the way you love your neighbor is do not murder them. Do not have senseless slaughtering in your society. These Ten Commandments are given to help us live together in community. And so you come to this Sixth Commandment, Lo Tirzak, which I think means you ought not to have the taking of human life outside of the parameters set forth by the Lord. There should not be senseless murder, and God gets to define what is senseless and what makes sense. Now, underneath the sixth commandment of do not murder is a bold declaration of God. And the bold declaration is that God values life. God values life, therefore there should not be senseless slaughterings. God values life, therefore if you're going to live in community in a way that honors the Lord, you ought not to have senseless murder in your streets. It's because God values life. He is the author of life. He is the giver of life. He is the one that stamps upon us his imago Dei, the image of God. He puts intrinsic value in all of humanity. God values life. If you're sitting here today and you're alive, and I'm assuming that if you're sitting here, you're alive, your life is a gift from God. I mean, at some point today, you just need to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the life that I have. Thank you for the air that I breathe. Thank you for waking me up this morning. Now, listen, I know that sometimes we have tough days. We have stressors beyond our human comprehension. We don't know what everybody else carries into church. But regardless of how tough your life may be, at least God has given you life. You have something to thank God for because God has given you life and life is valuable in the eyes of God. Over the last 18 months to two years, we all have heard this phrase, Black Lives Matter. And while I do not agree with what the organization Black Lives Matter stands for, I do agree with the statement, black lives matter. As followers of God, we ought to wholeheartedly affirm that black lives matter. And the very next breath, we ought to say, brown lives matter, and red lives matter, and white lives matter, and old lives matter, and young lives matter, and male lives matter, and female lives matter, and unborn lives matter. Life matters because God is the giver of life. And if you're alive today, you have God to thank, and we need to say unto the Lord, Lord, we thank you because life matters. You have stamped upon us the Imago day and the image of God could not even be snuffed out once Adam and Eve fell into sin and even through the tainted aspects of sin every person that's ever been created has been fully made in the image of God the Imago Day. and because of that we ought to say thank you God thank you for life you are the giver of life you're the sustainer of life you're the redeemer of life in you we have life the sixth commandment, yes, it does tell us that we ought not to have senseless murder in our street. But underneath it, there's a bold declaration that God values life. You're important, not because of your titles, not because of your education, not because of your upbringing. 
Not because of your promotion, not because of your popularity. You are important simply because God made you. Jane Ellen did a great job instilling this into our children. In fact, um, we would oftentimes tell Molly Grace, you're beautiful. And then we would ask her, do you know why you're beautiful? And we trained her with this theological response, because God made me. You're beautiful. Why? Because God made me. In fact, this past week, we FaceTimed with Molly Grace while she was in college. And just as a test, I just looked at her and I asked her, I said, hey, um, do you know why you're beautiful? And here she is, nearly 20 years of age, and she looked right back at me and she just simply said, without even blinking an eye, with no hesitation, because God made me. And that's exactly right. She's beautiful. You're beautiful simply because God made you. You're special. You're unique. You are have intrinsic value simply because God made you. You are not valuable because of how far you can hit a baseball. You're not valuable because of how tightly you can throw a spiral. You're not valuable simply because you know how to build a tree stand. You're not valuable simply because of the grade you made on the algebra test. You're not valuable simply because you fit in a size two dress. You're not valuable just because the other watching world says you're popular. You're valuable because God made you. And God doesn't make any junk. And God never makes a mistake. So you have intrinsic value. You have intrinsic worth simply because God made you. And even though that's true for every person under the sound of my voice, we also have to confess that we live in a very violent society, don't we? I'll never forget reading the story of John White. John White lived in the quiet suburb of southwest Cleveland, Ohio. And one day, this 40-year-old father was brutally murdered. The investigators discovered that this man was murdered by a 19-year-old thug. As the police uh, began to figure out what happened, uh, they realized that uh, this 19-year-old teenager was hired by Mr. White's two children, at that time a 17-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter. Once John White was murdered, the kids put his dead body in a closet, slammed the door, stole his credit card got into the car and went on a 10-day shopping spree. Eventually, the police caught up with them. When they apprehended this 17-year-old son and this 14-year-old daughter, they simply asked the question, "Um, why did you do this? Why did you hire this 19-year-old teenager to kill your father for only $60? And their response, dad wouldn't let us do what we wanted to do. The next logical question is, what did your dad not let you do that you wanted to do? And they responded, we wanted to drop out of school. We wanted to have no curfew and we wanted to smoke pot. And dad wouldn't let us. So for the going rate of $60, they hired a 19-year-old teenager to knock off their old man. How do you explain that? I've got one word, Tirzak senseless murder. When I think about the sixth commandment, 
I am reminded of homicide. Homicide is when humanity kills humanity. In the year 2020, there were 21,500 homicides in the United States of America. If you do the math, that's 2.5 homicides every hour. So before this worship service is over, two to three individuals will be killed, murdered, slaughtered on the streets and the country alleyways of our country. The FBI tells us that 2020 was a sharp increase in homicides. In fact, there were 30% more homicides in 2020 than in 2019. The FBI declares that this is the sharpest single year increase on record. When asked, why do you explain this? How can you explain this? They gave various answers from COVID to civil unrest to incessant protest on the streets of our towns and always on our television screens. And while some of that may be true, I've got an answer. Terzak, senseless murder. When I think of the sixth commandment, I'm also reminded of suicide. Do you know that you're twice as likely to kill yourself than to have somebody else kill you? In the year 2020, there were 44,834 suicides, successful suicides in America. It's estimated that 1.4 million Americans attempted suicide in the year 2020. If you do the math, that tells you that in this worship hour, there will be five successful suicides in the United States of America. Now, I realize that for some folks, um, there are individuals who believe that suicide is the only option left. And I want to tell you that suicide is no option at all. Your life is valuable. You have intrinsic worth. It is the Lord who has created you. And he stamped inside of you value. He stamped inside of you his imago day. He gives you purpose in life. I don't know all of your thought process. I don't know all the things that you think. I don't know all the things that you feel. I realize that some people uh, get depressed or clinically depressed. Even some of the best and brightest in the Bible suffered from that. Uh, people like Jonah, Elijah, even David after his escapade with Bathsheba. But for all of those individuals, God proved sufficient. And I want to tell you this morning that God is able to lift you out of your deep darkness into his marvelous light. His grace is sufficient for you. I, regardless of how dark you go, regardless of, 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 your, of your thought process, God is able to lift you out of that miry pit and set your feet squarely upon a rock. God is able. I want you to know that suicide is the most selfish act a person can do. It's the most selfish thing that a person can do for somehow to believe that their life has no value, their life has no worth, and the only option is for them to snuff out their life. And you don't have the right to do that, friend. You don't have the right to take your own life. The only person who has the right to take your life is the one who gave you life, and I'm talking about God. 
God is the one who gives you life and God is the one who numbers your days and God is the one who takes you home at the appropriate time. It is the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, so blessed be the name of the Lord. When I think about this sixth commandment, not only do I think about homicide and suicide, as tragic as that is, but my mind also goes to abortion. You realize that since 1973, there have been 62 million abortions in this nation. The average each year is 1.3 million abortions. You do the math of that, every hour, 148 abortions are performed. Now, homicide is terrible, two to three an hour. Suicide is even more senseless. That's five an hour. Abortion in this country, 148 an hour. Now, those who are on the other side of the argument will say, and accurately so, that over the last couple of years, we have not had 1.3 million abortions. It's only 900,000. To which I want to respond, are we supposed to be proud of that? That it's dropped to 900,000 in the last couple of years. You and I, as God's people, we are unequivocally pro-life. The other side is not pro-choice. The other side is pro-death. Let's just be honest. Embryologists will agree that human development begins at fertilization. Now, I've been told for the last two years i got to follow the science. I don't know exactly what science I'm supposed to follow all the time, but if I listen to embryologists, they will say in one voice that human development begins at fertilization. Now, as Bible-believing Christians, that sounds an awful lot like life begins at conception because both conception and fertilization are describing the same thing when a sperm and an egg come together, developing that first cell that's called a zygote. The moment you were a zygote, you were a human. You were a person. That zygote, that single cell, had DNA in it, which, by the way, is the same DNA that you have right now seated in this sanctuary or listening to this sermon. It's the same DNA. It has not changed since the moment you were a single cell organism called a zygote. You have always been the same person with DNA. It's not a blob of tissue. It's not pregnancy tissue. No such thing as pregnancy tissue. Either it's human tissue or it's non-human tissue. And at the moment of conception, at the moment of fertilization, Human development begins. When I hear about this discussion of abortion, there are some who just might be even thinking right now, Pastor, we ought not talk about this. This is a political issue. Friends, this is not a political issue. This is a spiritual issue. This is a moral issue. This is an ethical issue. This is not an elephant donkey issue. 
This is a spiritual issue standing before God where we say we realize, God, that you are pro-life. You value life. So we as your people, we value life because human development begins at the moment of conception, at the moment of fertilization. That's what David said in Psalm 139. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And God never makes any mistakes. Those On the other side of the argument, they will use terms like zygote, embryo, and fetus as a way of dehumanizing the person that's growing and developing inside mama's womb. But really, those terms are just stages of development. And even once that human being is born, we still talk about stages, don't we? We speak of the newborn and the toddler and the child and the teenager and the young adult and the middle-aged adult and the senior adult. All of those are different stages of human development. But at every stage, you are a person from the zygote to the elderly, from the very beginning to the very end. You are a human. You have the same DNA that you have right now. You are a human being made in the image of God, stamped with his value and worth. He says you're important simply because God made you. And God made you at the moment of fertilization. God made you at the moment of conception. There are those on the other, other side of the argument. And they will advocate abortion for reasons that can be lumped in these four areas. One, simply because of size. That embryo is so small. It's so insignificant. It's not human. It's just an embryo. It's small. Still others will say that not only is it small, but the level of development is so primitive that there's no way it could function on its own. And still other area of argument is about environment because that little embryo has to be in the environment of his mother's womb, can't survive outside of that environment. And still, lastly, it will simply be said, well, there is a great deal of dependency that That little embryo, that fetus is so dependent upon its mother. It's even attached with the umbilical cord. And so if it didn't have the umbilical cord, it would not be able to survive. So because of those reasons, abortion is permitted. And I want to tell you quickly that all of those are moving targets. All of those arguments are moving targets. Think about size. Do we ever place a person's value equivalent to the size of their body? The answer is no. Big people aren't more valuable than little people. If that was the case, Shaquille O'Neal would be one of the most valuable people in the eyes of God. He's big. He's bigger than me, bigger than you, bigger than anybody I can see right now. And so we would not say that he has more value in the eyes of God simply because he's big and we are small. When you come to the argument of level of development. Well, let me just remind you that a guy's brain is not fully developed until he's 25 years of age. Ladies, can I get an amen? 
This is no earth-shattering news to you. You've known this. You know this, that a man's brain is not zipped all the way up both sides of the hemisphere. It's not zipped until he's at least 25 years old. So because he's not fully developed, which by the way, that explains why your teenage son makes some decisions that he makes. He's got half a brain. Yeah, he really does. So that explains why we make some of those boneheaded decisions that we make. But Mom and dad, there were times when you wanted to kill your teenage son, but you didn't. Why? Because that would be murder. But you could not say, well, the reason I killed him was because he wasn't fully developed. That would not work in a court of law. You may want it to, but it won't work in a court of law. So just because he's not fully developed, is that any right to take a human life? Environment. Yes, it is true that that human being needs the safe confines of the mother's womb. But we all live in environments, don't we? We come out of the womb into a room. A room is an environment. A building is an environment. A car is an environment. A restaurant is an environment. A house is an environment. Is the argument that just because it's not in the right environment, then it ought not to be a human life and you can dispose of it anytime you want to what if the rules change and it becomes not the environment of a womb but the environment of a specific room if you get into a specific room then you're no longer human which by the way you do realize that the environment inside the mother's womb to outside the mother's room is only seven inches do you mean to tell me that that human being traveling seven inches somehow in that seven-inch journey goes from being non-human to being human just because he or she traveled seven inches successfully. The whole argumentation is kind of idiotic. And then you get to the argument of dependency. Well, that embryo is dependent of the mother's womb, of the umbilical cord. That's true. Very dependent. But have you ever seen a newborn? A newborn is very dependent upon mom and dad. Parents, can you leave a newborn to do whatever a newborn wants to do? No, you've got to watch that newborn 24-7. Some of y'all do watch 24-7. It's a precious gift from God, right? And so, but that newborn cannot be left alone. That newborn is dependent upon you. And this whole argumentation of dependency what happens when grandma gets Alzheimer's and she's dependent upon somebody else? What happens when that 15-year-old who, yes, maybe his brain is not completely zipped up, but he was pretty independent and he had a football injury that left him a paraplegic and now he's dependent on his parents to feed him, to change him, to do everything for him. At that moment, when that 15-year-old has that football injury, does he no longer become human? Is, does he cease to be human and then you can take his life in a viable way? The answer is no. The truth of the matter is that we live in a country that typically the more dependent a person is upon others, the more laws we have to protect that individual except in the case of the unborn. 
except in the case of the unborn. The unborn has to fend for herself. The unborn has to fend for himself because there really are no laws protecting the unborn. Friends, I just want to remind you of the facts. The facts are that life begins at conception. It begins at fertilization. It is God who is the giver of life, the creator of life. He breathed into the nostrils and man became a living being. He knit us together in our mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And within the first 30 days, the heart begins to beat. The first 30 days after conception, the heart begins to beat. Within the first 41 days, the brain begins to wave. Within the first 12 weeks, the end of the first trimester, within the first trimester, vocal cords have already formed. And I contend that that little child is flipping and flopping in mama's embryonic fluid, and he's praising the Lord. You can't hear him, and even if you could hear him, you wouldn't understand him, but his creator can hear him, and his creator can understand him. That even before that little baby gets beyond that first trimester, he has already had the capability, capacity to praise the Lord. Because his vocal cords are formed. His brain is formed. Uh, uh, brain waves are beginning to form. And his heart is pumping. Oh, friends, at every stage of life, there is life. 93% at least of all abortions are for non-medical reasons. 93%. A teacher asked her students, uh, how would you advise this family? This mother and father, they have four children, and the fifth one is on the way. Uh, the father has syphilis. The mother has tuberculosis. The first child was born blind. The second child was stillborn, born dead. The third child was born deaf, and the fourth child has tuberculosis. What would you tell them to do for the fifth child? The children in the class began to debate. They came with their conclusion. And she simply said, for those of you who would give the advice of aborting that fifth child, you just aborted Beethoven. You just aborted Beethoven. Because what I just described was Beethoven's ancestry. Friends, life begins at conception. Life is valuable because God said so. In the sixth commandment, when he says, lo tirzak, he means do not take the senseless murdering of humanity outside the parameters that I set. And so I can see that as homicide and suicide and abortion, just to name a few. And I realize that some of you, you've been affected by homicide because you had a family member killed. You've been affected by suicide because you've had a friend, family member, take their own life. And some of you have been affected by abortion. Maybe you had an abortion. Maybe you were the boyfriend that urged your then-girlfriend to go to the clinic and just take care of the problem. And maybe that's a deep, dark secret that has scarred you for the last 20, 30, maybe 40 years. Friends, I want you to know that God is sufficient his grace is able to be the balm of Gilead, to soothe your soul, to forgive you of any sin and wrongdoing. Our God is able. When Jesus comes along in the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever lived, Matthew chapter 5, he internalizes that which is external. He said, you've heard it said, do not murder. Yet I say to you, 
Don't even get angry at your brother. For if you say raka, you're subject to the Sanhedrin. If you say you fool, you're subject to the flames of hell. Now Jesus just raised the bar of commitment. He just heightened the intensity. He just internalized what was external. I could look around this room and I could see many people who have never broken the sixth commandment. You've never killed anybody. You wanted to, but you haven't. You've never committed suicide, even though there have been moments that you have uh, deep, depressive thoughts. And you've never gone to an abortion clinic to have an abortion. You never encouraged your girlfriend to get an abortion. And so you think to yourself, I'm skating home free because I've never been guilty of senseless murdering of the sixth commandment. But all my friends... Let me just remind you that Jesus said, if you've ever gotten angry at somebody, you've broken the sixth commandment. I may be able to find a lot of people who have never broken physically the sixth commandment of Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. I cannot find anybody who has not broken the sixth commandment according to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. All of us have gotten angry at somebody. All of us have sliced and diced somebody's reputation with a few poorly choiced words. All of us have been guilty of gossip, and by that gossip, we have slandered an individual, we have murdered their reputation, we have put them six feet under, and we really don't care that much about it, because they made us angry, they made us mad, and we justify our fit of rage, and we justify our words of vindication. Oh, and Jesus says, murderer, murderer, you are a criminal, you are a vile murderer. When I come to the sixth commandment, it forces me to Mount Calvary because it's there that Jesus was murdered. And who murdered him? Well, you could say the Jewish people murdered him. The Roman government murdered him. The Roman centurions murdered him. I murdered him. You murdered him. It was our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. We are criminals. We are guilty as charged. It's because of our anger. It's because of our resentment. It's because of our poor choice words. It's because of our actions. It's because of our dirty deeds. It's because of our secrets that nobody knows about, just us and God. It's because of those things that Jesus died. And we are murderers. We are criminals guilty as charged. But God loves you so much. And he values life so much. Not just life on this earth, but life eternal. Because he values you so much, he did not spare his own son. But he gave himself, his son up for you. So that Jesus died on the cross so that you might live. Jesus was murdered so that you could be declared innocent. Jesus died in your place For your sin, in your stead, Jesus died so that you might live. His dead body was taken off the cross, placed into a borrowed grave. And on the third day, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. That's why we say, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I was a guilty criminal. I was a murderer in the eyes of God, yet Jesus did the time for me. Jesus took the punishment I deserved. Jesus was condemned in my place. And now by faith, I, like you, can have life everlasting. So this morning, are there any murderers in the house? This morning, are there any criminals? 
in need of forgiveness? Maybe you know the pain of homicide. Maybe you know the pain of a friend or family member committing suicide. Maybe you know the scars of abortion. Scars that are far more than physical. They are emotional, mental, and spiritual. And maybe you know the depth and the pain of angry words that are spoken to you and about you and maybe even from you. And this morning, friend, I just ask you to come to Jesus. I ask you to come to him and he will give life because he values life. He will give life because he's able to. So if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, I invite you to come. The moment we start singing, I want you to come. If you're here today and you are a believer, but God is impressing upon you something that you've said, something that you've done, and you just need to come to the altar and pray. Or maybe you just want to pray for somebody else. The altar's open for you. Maybe you need a church home. This is a great place for you to come. As God leads, won't you respond in obedience unto him? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Uh, Lord, we hear your word of low tirzak. Help us not to be guilty of senseless slaughtering of humanity by our actions or by our words. Lord, help us, we pray. Give us the grace that's needed in our time of need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.